Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dahlqvist. And I'm Brian Kotick. And this is Sadia Padi. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 60... Who are we kidding? 100% COVID-19. <laughs> every conversation, every topic, every news agency is talking about this. So why not us? Exactly. Oh, where in the world are you, Brian? I'm at home, obviously, <laughs> in full lockdown in, in London. Uh, Sadia, I assume the same? Yeah, full lockdown here in Cambridge, in the UK. Yep. But Joel, you're, you're not on lockdown, technically. Um, who knows? I, I am I'm in New York and I'm complying with whatever recommendations slash orders. I don't really know what the legal force of things are. I'm staying inside and have been. I think this is day 16. I'm not moving outside of the apartment other than for grocery shopping and the occasional jog, basically. I feel like you're etching in like a prisoner, like the, the tally of like how yeah. many days I've been. <laughs> yeah, I'm not counting days. I don't, God knows how long this is going to last, right? I mean, yeah. to be honest, it's going to, it's changing everything. It's changing how, you know, you have to live with yourself, with <laughs> the others, <laughs> how you work. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty insane. How are you guys coping with it? I initially actually called my parents on day two because I was like, I can't do this. I was like, I am an outside person. I need to, I mean, my commute at least was something that got me outside and the hustle and bustle of, of London, you feel it a little bit, but I, but then you kind of adapt as an animal does. I called mm -hmm. myself Tilikum after three days because, you know, the, the, the whale and SeaWorld who like started killing people because he was kept in captivity. <laughs> I was like, I'm Tilikum. I'm going to go crazy. But you adapt, I guess. Or the guy in Shining, you start killing your entire family. Yeah, don't, don't <laughs> uh, but Joel, this is like, you know, you're like a fish to water in this scenario. Yeah, may, may the higher powers forgive me, but I kind of like this. Like, I feel so much at home and I wouldn't mind doing this for a while longer if, if that's what, what solidarity requires. I, I can stay inside <laughs> for another, easily a couple of months at least. This is like what you were doing before you started your job. Yeah, this is what I've been doing since like 2013. I, I just feel like the rest of the world is catching up now. Like the limited interactions <laughs> with, with external people. This is perfect. I'm also share, sharing this with a person uh, throughout all this uh, here in, in New York. And we're like just enjoying the slow life. It's so nice. I, it could have been different if I, if I were completely alone. I think I would have maybe gone crazy eventually. But I do enjoy the rolling out of bed to your computer. That's... <laughs> That's quite nice. Instead of like putting on a suit and blah blah. blah. Yeah, taking calls in your PJs. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Although, guys, you know, I have to admit, I think the world right now is divided in two: from people who have kids, actually, people who have kids under five, and and you guys. So <laughs> I, I I don't think I have the same life as you guys do right now. It is, and in fact, we might hear. Uh, some interruption and it is not ancestral meetings or something else going on right now the interruption is my new co-worker who's <laughs> under five um 
<laughs> and it, yeah, it's, it's insanely difficult if you have to, like both of us are working um, and are supposed to continue working from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, when you can't have any babysitter or anyone help you take mm. care of someone in your lockdown in home, it's it's uh, it's difficult. <laughs> the like only time we have to grip with your foot while you're typing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no. My so my daughter's four years old, and I don't want to talk too much about that. But it's I don't know how guys are, how everybody else is coping with the entertainment side of things because she just needs to be entertain i can't just be like hey make a puzzle and i'll draft this thing because my drafting right. is going to be for more than three minutes yes. <laughs> which is the yeah. time she's going to be mom, mom, <laughs> yeah mom, yeah okay. that's constantly it mom, <laughs> mom, mom, ba, 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 ba. yeah so it's okay i mean at least we have the nights i guess that's what i was well saying. and i mean we're one of the only industries that is fully operational and we're not expected to slow down and the work is coming in <laughs> And the drafts are still being drafted and the deadlines are still in place. Yeah. Everything can be done virtually anyway. So um, you yeah. it's not like other industries where it's like, well, I, we lost our jobs and so now we can be with our kids. It's like, no, we're supposed to do business. But it's I mean, the conferences are canceled, which I guess we'll get we will get back to because that impacts the podcast, too. And hearings are canceled. And it's still like a few things have have happened since mm. we yeah. last spoke, which was a month ago, I guess, when I was. Yeah, all, but conferences. But conferences have been turned into webinars or articles, right? So people are still working on doing that kind of work, I feel, you know, like not to um, put all that effort to waste. And then the the type of work has also changed. I mean, I don't know if you, Brian, but we are getting request after request from our clients on, um, you know, potential force majeure claims. Um, mm-hmm. So on top of the existing cases, like this is just like, oh, can you deal with this right now? Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I think it's true. Like a lot of stuff has, has been canceled. Um, and if you were working, for example, on a huge case and, and you had a hearing and stuff and it's been canceled, then of course your, you know, schedule is completely, uh, you know, changed with respect to that. But, but yeah, I would say it's still, it's still kind of crazy. Um you know, the, the busyness, I would say. So mm. let's see. Let's see if that keeps on going in a few weeks or if things settle down. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, Joel, I mean, technically, you're supposed to be out at Easter, according to Trump. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Well, I have to go back to Europe at some point soon, and uh, my flight was canceled. I'm looking to, to rebook, but it's like a kind of a 50-50 risk that all the airlines are out of business <laughs> next week. Yeah. A friend of mine is a pilot for Virgin, and he's completely grounded and put on fifty percent pay. Mm. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Well, you can still take the boat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Greta Thunberg mode of express. Uh, she she also has the virus, by the way, or maybe has. Oh yeah, just a few days ago. Yeah, so like, no one's safe. Oh my goodness! Oh yeah, lordy I- lord. Um, no, it's it is. It, I mean, ICA. So the conferences that are canceled. ICA's canceled now officially, right? Postpone. Yeah, they've postponed Postpone. it. They've postponed it to next year, actually February twenty twenty one, right? That's oh, okay. the email that I agree. Yeah, um, and yeah, Paris Arbitration Week has been postponed to September. And uh, in fact, the ICC European Conference that uh, was supposed to happen during that time. Uh, will probably also happen, although I'm not sure at all, in September. And this, uh, the core of our topics today are going to be 
on what the ICC European Conference was supposed to uh, be on, correct? Yeah, exactly. So we have the two substantive topics will be taken from the program that was supposed to be from that conference. And I don't know if they're going to be changing the program, so maybe this will become irrelevant. But I, I could imagine they're going to want to do a panel on on this crisis. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll, we'll continue with business as usual. We took the executive decision as a podcast <laughs> to continue recording because we can do this remotely as well. And people are going to be wanting to consume content, we hope, uh, during this time, because you have nothing else to do. Um, then I am to... I am myself only waiting for my various podcasts to update, like looking on my phone once a day, like, okay, I need more podcasts. Please. Yeah, update. please. Same. <laughs> same, same, same. So why not listen to us, right? So we have the three topics today will be I'll take the first substantive topic, which um, is the first uh, scheduled programming for the ICC European Conference, which is the tariff wars and supply chains relating to the Trump administration. Um, and then, Sadia, you'll take the second topic. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, going to be on the European Green Deal and climate law and what impact it has on dispute resolution. And then it's happy fun time. And it's about greeting protocols, handshakes, uh, cheek kisses, elbow rubbing, touching, whatever we're doing <laughs> right now. What, what, is the what is the default? And for once, I'm going to advertise this to you guys too so that you're on the same page. I, I want this one to be not just us talking. I want us to end that segment with a list, a recommendation, of like how to approach greetings in the world of arbitration. I want something concrete like a hands-on guide uh, okay. to be the outcome of, of this happy fun time fine i'm ready right yeah looking forward to that i have <laughs> before we move on i had just one more thing to say and it's actually it's good for your for your daughter too sadia something to do while you're in lockdown i can recommend yeah, IA, re IA reporter. Oh IA my reporter. god! <laughs> Good segue. <laughs> I have seriously been reading up on IA reporter stuff because I've had uh, some time for, for the first time ever, basically. Uh, so I've had some professional spare time. So I've actually been reading up on on older things, and that is something that we can recommend to our listeners. Not only because IA reporter is our sponsor for season four, but because it's an amazing service focused on international investment law with a team of expert analysts that offer up to the minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. And last year, that's 2019, IA Reporter launched a new content feature, which is a series of case profiles on more than 1,300 investor state arbitrations, including easily searchable data on arbitrators, counsel, and key developments in each case. So, to find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to IA Reporter, visit iareporter.com. And with that, I think I'll hand the microphone back to Brian Kayak. All right. Uh, the first topic that we will be discussing today is tariff wars and supply chains. Are these disputes in the making? And if we read directly from the program, the program wanted to tackle what the Trump administration has been doing and threatening regarding tariffs and their trading partners. Um, in 2019 alone, well, actually in December, the Trump administration 
administration announced and or threatened, depending how you read it, new tariffs um, in response to three different disputes, the steel and aluminum tariffs on Brazil and Argentina to counter the alleged manipulation of their currencies, uh, the punitive duties of up to 100% on over $2, two billion in French agricultural and consumer products, um, and then also the China increased tariffs on consumer goods from China um, if the trade deal is not reached. Um, the first trade phase of that trade deal was um, finally signed in January 2020 um, with the attention of the new election year pending and the idea and expectation that Trump would be reelected. Um, so with this globalization of supply chains and diversified manufacturing, um, it is the rule, not the exception, that companies find themselves in the middle of the Trump administration's trade disputes. Um, and so there's strategies that these companies would actually undertake to mitigate the impact of these increased tariffs, tariffs. But it may disrupt their contractual relationships altogether, especially at all levels of their supply chains. So this panel was going to aim to identify the types of disputes that could arise. Um, to give a background of the first dispute, which is the um, tariffs on Argentina and Brazil, that started with a tweet from President Trump on the 2nd of December 2019, uh, which is how all diplomatic policies are these days. Uh, and he tweeted, Brazil and Argentina have been presiding over a massive devaluation of their currencies, period, not comma, uh, which is not good for our farmers, therefore effective immediately. I will restore the tariffs on all steel and aluminum that is shipped into the U.S. from those countries. Um, and this has to do with a long-running series of Trump-imposed tariffs on steel and aluminum, ostensibly implemented under the National Security Exception Exemption to GATT. <clears throat> so he was saying that it was a matter of national security, uh, that these currencies would be affecting the industries, um, particularly the agricultural industries, and so he would need to um, announce these uh possible tariffs on steel and aluminum. And this comes from, it originated in March 2018 when he announced his intention to impose a 25% uh, VAT on steel and aluminum imports. And he exempted certain countries, including Argentina and Brazil, that were given a temporary ex exemption. Uh, but then this 2019 tweet signaled that these two countries, Argentina and Brazil, would no longer benefit from this temporary exemption. Um, he backed down on his threat to impose dune tariffs on Brazil after President Bolsonaro uh, announced that he had reached agreement with Trump to that effect in a Facebook Live video. So to increase the level of bizarre nature of this exchange. And if you look at this Facebook Live video, the president is wearing a soccer or football jersey. Uh, in next to two of his uh, associates or colleagues that were wearing full suits. Um, so that was an interesting choice of clothing for that type of announcement. Um, <laughs> but this, uh, the WTO actually sanctioned these retali retaliatory tariffs. Um, so in October 2019, the WTO authorized the imposition of a 7.5 billion uh, dollar, US dollar retaliatory tariffs on the European Union in light of the WTO's earlier finding that the EU had illegally subsidized the development of certain Airbus planes. Um, so that was over 15 years of WTO litigation between the EU and the US over alleged subsidization of Airbus and Boeing. So the US promised to tax airplanes at 10% and a range of other goods at 25%. Um, so 
and this was on uh, in a, a host of other goods that were directly related to European imports, like French wine, olives, uh, virgin olive oil, oranges and lemons from Spain, uh, pork from Germany, Italian cheeses, uh, and and the like. And so, in February of that year, the tariffs were modified, bringing the tax on airplanes to 15% and adding the 25% tariff on French and German butcher and kitchen knives while sparring bizarrely on prune juice and other levies. Um, so although there was an authorization by the WTO in place, there's an argument uh, that the means by which the U.S. intended to apply these tariffs was uh, illegal because the U.S. said that it was contemplating what's called carousel tariffs. Um, carousel tariffs is basically this, you have a list of tariffs as a country that you're levying on certain goods and a carousel tariff is basically like amending that list of consumer goods or any type of goods that you plan on levying the tariffs on. Um, so in February, 2020, for example, Bloomberg reported that they were, that the U S was considering these carousel retaliation, uh, tariffs. Um, and the EU considered those to be illegal, even when authorized by the WTO, um, because they're basically rotating tariffs that would be so disruptive um, to these industries that are effective, uh, effective, excuse me. Um, and another part of this dispute had to do with the retaliation over France's digital service tax uh, in January 2020. So uh, France passed the so-called digital service tax in July 2019 that would impose a 3% levy on all sales generated in France by any digital service provided with sales of uh, 750 million euros um, in French sales. Um, and then in response, the U.S. Uh, trade representatives released a report in December outlining that the U.S. had issues on this tax, calling it very discriminatory, um, and they even threatened... Uh, the imposition of tariffs uh, against them on French wines and cheeses uh, in response. And so, but the U.S. and France have kind of agreed on a temporary uh, halt on this tariff. Um, so they decided to postpone that type of taxation, but it, it forms all part and parcel of this dispute. Um, the second type of dispute that I had uh, talked about in the introduction is the U.S.-China trade agreement that was signed in January 2020. Um, there was a lot of tariff fights happening between the two countries, between Trump and the Chinese government um, specifically. So they were imposing tariffs and restrictions on more and more products. For example, uh, the U.S. was imposing um, a lot of importation restrictions on Chinese products, um, such as Huawei, which um, has been the subject of a lot of disputes um, linked to the Chinese government, alleged use of Huawei in order to sell these products into the European markets and the US markets, and then monitoring kind of the conversations and spying on people using the Huawei products. Um, so there was a lot of disputes with that. I think even the Czech Republic, uh, or Huawei was um, arguing with the Czech Republic in another country to uh, saying that this was, um, that their policy in not allowing Huawei to enter these um in, into these countries and into these markets due to this like national security uh, reason was actually discriminatory towards these Chinese products. So they were threatening BIT claims or themselves mm -hmm. um, or other claims. 
But the inevitably, the uh, economic and trade agreement between the government of the United States and China was signed. Um, and they have kind of a level of dispute, me- uh, dispute resolution mechanism contained therein. Um, so you can have a t- political dispute, which is out, uh, outlined in Chapter 7 of the agreement. Um, and they have a dispute resolution procedure perci- specifically for these political disputes between the USTR and uh the designated vice premier of the People's Republic of China. And it required them, if such dispute would arise, to establish a bilateral evaluation and dispute resolution office, uh, which should A, assess specific issues relating to the implementation of the agreement, B, receive complaints regarding the agreement's implementation, and C, attempt to resolve the disputes through consultation. So it's bilateral, meaning that either party can complain to the others. dispute resolution body, and it would lead to an assessment of the dispute and then a consultation process between the two countries. Um, So to simplify the procedure greatly, a party unsatisfied with the consultation process could unilaterally suspend an obligation under the agreement, and then the other side may terminate the agreement if they think a response was taken in bad faith. the reason why the deal is considered unique in the international context is some people think that it's a violation of international trade law since it would require uh, each party to um, undertake certain obligations, these like unilateral obligations such as China being able to purchase or required to purchase 200 billion US dollars in agriculture and energy products. Um, and so it kind of, it uh, is... A, it, it, I was just about to say very unique. Um, it's unique in its in its construction, <laughs> but also um, it would be in its implementation and its dispute resolution procedures. Um, so there's a lot of problems that can go out, and its intersection with ISDS um, and this this type of trade measures that are subject to ISDS disputes is quite uh, prolific in the NAFTA context um, since they. Uh, have a lot of trade between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, so there was a lot of um, disputes that arose from that. Um, So there's a lot of problems that come with these type of of trade measures uh, that are subject to ISDS disputes, and the most significant one is that um, the imposition of these tariffs or otherwise regulating the importation of a party's goods, um, a tribunal would lack jurisdiction over those since there's not technically an investment since the goods have not entered the country, and typically they... Um, company that is important, importing those goods is not necessarily a have have any presence in the host state, so there wouldn't be any quote investment um, in the host state. And so, to give an example of what that was like um, in some of the NAFTA cases, you have the Canadian Cattlemen case, uh, where Canadian claimants brought a claim under NAFTA on the basis of U.S. trade measures that violated their rights to import goods into the U.S. And this had to do after the mad cow disease outbreak uh, in the U.S. And so the U.S. tried to stop all importation of Canadian beef or Canadian cattle into the U.S. Um, and the so these Canadian companies, the Canadian cattle farmers, raised a claim and after Chapter 11 for damages. And the U.S. raised jurisdictional objections saying that the cattlemen did not have an investment uh, that would allow them protections under Chapter 11. Um, so clearly, it's kind of an obvious jurisdictional objection. The tribunal, unsurprisingly, dismissed the claim at the jurisdictional phase for that same reason. Um, Notwithstanding some creative arguments, the tribunal held that NAFTA Chapter 11 was not intended to cover simple cross-border trading interests, um, but something more permanent, such as the commitment of capital or other resources in the territory of a party. 
um, to economic t activity in such territory is necessary for such a claim to be brought. Is, um, is Canadian Kettleman the best case name? In ISDS history, like the best claimant's name. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, What do you think are good? What are good claimant names? Canadian Kettleman is maybe the best one. That's it's so good. so much better than you know Salini. <laughs> or like, <laughs> what like do you have against Salini? <laughs> I like Ustergetel. I don't know how you pronounce that one. I just did a memo on that case, and I was laughing at the. The claimant's name in that one, but that's just a surname, so I guess Canadian Cattleman's pretty good. Canadian yeah, we need better names on, on cases. <laughs> Come on, investors, <laughs> get creative. Uh, okay, so that type of claim was also brought up in a more in a more recent case, like Apotex, um, where the claimant alleged a breach of NAFTA's national treatment (FET) and expropriation protections that arose out of the U.S.'s refusal to approve generic versions of an antidepressant and anti-cholesterol medication being imported into the U.S. from Canada. Uh, Apotex challenged the decisions of certain U.S. courts and regulatory bodies that denied Apotex manufactured generics regulatory approval. Um, they acknowledged that they didn't reside or have a permanent place of business in the U.S., but they argued that the regulatory approval themselves constituted the investments in the form of intellectual property. Um, the tribunal found that it was without jurisdiction there as well, saying that Apotex's activities with respect to the contemplated sales of its of its products in the United States are those of an exporter and not as an investor. So um, you kind of have a, a significant line of cases that would say that there wouldn't be an investment if you were to bring an ISDS claim con mm. uh, contemplating under the specific trade measures uh, that you were invoking. Um, and then, so notwithstanding that objection, could an investor bring a claim against the host state for the imposition of tariffs? And again, we all know that that is difficult and that in most BITs, you're not allowed to challenge a tax, um, including the ECT, where they have a specific carve out. But the answer could be that there is potential to do so, um, since they could give rise to a breach of legitimate expectations that you had a certain kind of legal framework in place that you had the expectation that you'd be able to import goods into the country or not. Um, and there is kind of an, an arguable case that that would be the case. Um, so you also have kind of an idea of a breach of national treatment in that sense, where you're if the trade measures are imposed to kind of favor the local manufacturers over any foreign manufacturers of certain goods. Um, in that case, an example of that would be Cargill v. Mexico, where a claimant successfully argued in that case that Mexico breached the breached NAFTA for measures that were trade restrictions, but they were on high fructose corn syrup, um, and they basically created a, so Mexico put an excise on certain products that contained a lot of high fructose corn syrup, but the reasoning for imp implementing those trade measures was to protect the domestic sugar uh, sugar industry in Mexico that was on the verge of collapse. So Cargill did have an enterprise in Mexico, so there's a, a significant difference there. Um, so they said that there was an investment um, and that there would be a breach of uh, national treatment if it was the fact that Mexico was trying to further their domestic industry over that of the international importer. Um, so far, only treaty arbitration. Are you on your way to international commercial? commercial? Because it feels like yes. that would be a, a more, even like more realistic or yes. a, a larger potential of uh, disputes based off of tariffs. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
Absolutely. So but before we go into commercial, I'll just like flag again that the Huawei is an example where you could have a BIT claim based off trade measures where you have um, a country using this national security exception to remove or exclude an importer of importing their goods into their country. So to say that they didn't actually have this national security problem uh, would be uh, not justifying their trade measure. But as Jill says, the international commercial arbitration consequences of these type of trade wars, or I guess it's not arbitration consequences, but arbitration, commercial arbitration would be an outgrowth of these types of disputes since these tariffs by their very nature are intended to disrupt commercial relationships um, and shift right. production from abroad to their domestic producers. Oh, I thought you were going to say something. But yeah. yes, so uh, although we don't have a, a wealth of um, cases since a lot of these are um, confidential, you do have um, a lot of kind of generic provisions that you could have in contracts that would give rise to liability if um, there were to be a disruptive uh, effect of these types of trade measures. So for example, if a contract could specify that a party delivering the goods um, pays the duties or the party receiving the goods pays, so these types of terms deal with the allocation of risk, so which party could have allocated their risk um, with the expectation that such restrictive trade measures would be um, in place. Um, another example would be, and this is may maybe under the common law, uh, more under the common law, but you have this impracticability. Do they have that in the civil law? Uh, I, m maybe it's, frust is it frustration? Um, so it would be under force majeure. Right. Okay. So uh, in the common law, you have a bit more to work with. Um, so you have impossibility of performance, basically saying that the contractual duty to perform would be rendered impossible because of mm -hmm. the trade measures and therefore would excuse them from performance. Um, frustration is an English law concept that basically says that the very nature of the contract would be frustrated if... Um, you were to abide by these tra trade regulations. And then mm -hmm. in the U.S., you even have a lesser one of impracticabilities to say that um, it may not be impossible, but it has rendered it impractical if the trade restrictions, for example, in the event of a tariff, would make it too expensive to import into the country um, to make it kind of re commercially reasonable for them to do so, then you have an excuse under the contract. For more on these doctrines, see earlier last episode actually on the virus and its effects yeah exactly um where yeah. saudia talked about the commercial relationships and how those could be affected um and then you get and then what we talked about in that segment was um the concept of force majeure um and then if you look to the icc model of uh force majeure and model hardship clauses you have um in one subsection quote an act of authority whether lawful or unlawful uh, compliance with any governmental rule, rule or regulation. Um, actually, in one of the contracts uh, to for a supplier for one of our weddings, uh, legislation <laughs> uh, was not one of the reasons uh, that you could invoke force majeure. So um, considering the fact that Boris Johnson was enacting these type of regulations to say that we couldn't leave our homes and that we couldn't gather more than 50 people at one time, uh, you could technically argue that that is a regulation and therefore would not be subject to... Um, a force majeure exception if you did not provide for it in your contract. And coming from someone who tested positive now for <gasps> COVID-19. Did you not hear that? Oh, oh yeah. I, did you? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. No, 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 not, yeah. <laughs> not me, Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Boris Johnson has, has mild symptoms. And yeah. I heard Angela Merkel's also 
Oh, uh, really? She tested self, positive self, as well? Oh, oh she's okay. self-isolating, so I don't know. Oh, if she, okay. She has Sorry. it. Sorry. Sorry, no, no, no. sidetrack. <laughs> Not at all. Um, and then you have hardship clauses as well, which would um, give a party um, reason to excuse themselves from liability. So tariffs are very, by their nature, very disruptive. And so we could expect there not only to be um, breaches uh, that would give rise to ISDS arbitration, but also commercial arbitration. Um, and you have to really look to, if we're looking specifically to the Trump regulations, whether these unilateral actions would have shifted the party's assumptions or risk allocation, um, and whether these government post subsidies would be, uh, or not subsidies, but tariffs would be in, uh, included in that scope of risk that could have been anticipated by the parties. Um, hopefully the parties are, you know, drafting their contracts with care, uh, to be able to amount for this, especially if you're importing, I think you are so susceptible to different trade restrictions and regulations. Like mm -hmm. for example, Brexit, you would have a lot of issues with this. Um, you'd have a lot of issues with changing in trade regulations that would render a supply contract that between European nations that has been long lasting for 20 years now could be rendered impracticable depending on the level of the tariff imposed after um, the UK leaves, leaves the EU. So um, the answer, to, a very long answer to the question is of course these disputes could arise and <laughs> all uh, Jeed and or Winston and get your disputes resolved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, nice yeah. I love, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Plug, 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 plug. Um, <laughs> all right. So that's all. That's all for Trump for now. So the European Green Deal and climate law. What is the impact on dispute resolution? So again, it was one of the topics that was supposed to be addressed by the ICC European Conference on International Arbitration. And in the description of the program, it was the main, they were referring to the main environmental ambition of the Green Deal is to make the EU climate neutral by 2050 with circular economy, biodiversity and a zero pollution industry as other remarkable goals. And so the debate was going to be on the impact of those carbon neutrality legislation and other expected revision on environmental legislation um, on the possible disputes that might develop and the impact on states' regulatory action and investors' obligation. So what I'm going to be focusing on here, of course, is uh, more the investment, potential investment arbitration that um, might result from not only specifically that uh, European Green Deal, but more generally from the uh, environmental legislation. So first, a note, because then we're going to speak about the European Green Deal, uh, New Deal in particular, um, so what is the European Green New Deal? Um, so it's a set of policies that was proposed by the European Commission in December 2019. And the policies are intended to ensure that EU is a fair and prosperous society with a modern resource efficient and competitive economy. And here I quoted. And again, I'm going to continue the quote with uh, no net emissions of greenhouses gases by 2050 and where economic growth is decoupled from resource use. And if I may just pause to, again, link it up with the COVID-19 situation, I think we're on the right track. If you look from outside your windows, <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think for some reason, this is one of the silver linings of this whole situation is that, you know, um, I, I imagine that uh, greenhouse gases are on the low, but, you know, I don't have any scientific evidence right now, but uh, I'm sure that might be the case. <laughs> um, 
Now, going back to this. So as part of this plan, the EU has committed to propose the first European climate late by March 2020 to provide predictability, predictability sorry, for investors and to ensure the transition irreversible. Um, and so, you know, in, in recognizing um, that the transition to a low carbon economy may be onerous for existing invest investors, the European Commission had proposed a just transition fund for region sectors of the economy that are most affected by the transition, giving their dependence on fossil fuels, including coal, peat and oil shale or greenhouse gas intensive industrial processes. Um, this fund, however, as far as I understand, will not provide benefits directly to investors. So it appears to be a fund for member states only to be dispersed at their discretion. Um, so it doesn't appear to compensate investors either directly for the adverse effects of new climate change regulations. So it seems a bit unlikely to be helpful for investors. But anyhow, it might be at some point in how the member state decide to disperse the money. So that is still, I think, something that is relevant. Now, more generally speaking, um, in terms of the credit, there's been a lot of criticism of investment arbitration in the low carbon context specifically. And why is that? Well, because obviously, as I mentioned, arbitration may provide recourse um, to both existing investments adversely infected by changing environmental policy. Um, and the com commentators have suggested that existing investment protection law may hamstring attempts to transition to a low carbon economy. Uh, so, for example, uh, just to cite a few um, papers that have been out uh, on this topic, the International Institute for Sustainable Development published a comprehensive report, um, which is dated 2010. So it was a long time ago, but nonetheless still relevant, uh, saying that international treaties that often govern uh, foreign direct investment may in fact work against this objective or at best may miss important, important opportunities to contribute positively. Uh, there's always been, interestingly, a uh, report from Klein Earth that submitted a brief to Uncentral Working Group 3 calling for either determination of ISDS altogether, given its likely effect on climate change and environmental-related policy, or a, a variety of fairly radical reforms, including a carve-out for all measures taken by governments in pursuit of their obligation under the Paris Agreement. Wow. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty um Did pretty you hear radical. this when you were there? Um, I actually did not hear that at the time of the meetings where I yeah. was, because I think this was proposed beforehand uh, okay. when they were talking about the criticism of ISDS, uh, you know, more generally. Uh, but it's true that, you know, you had a lot of, um, you know, representatives from NGOs and, and, and Kleiner was present during the meeting. I so, think they've taken um, the microphone a few times when I've been there at uh, mm -hmm. Uncentral sessions. They're uh, fairly active, the Kleiner. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, they are. They are. Um, and so, you know, it seems like the most low carbon investments in the European energy sector will benefit from the investment protections in the ECT. Um, and there's been, interestingly, a, a Forbes article that summed up the fares with the headline, a little known EU investor dispute treaty could kill the Paris climate agreement. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's that's also interesting. In fact, but you know, as, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that uh, they are working now on reforming the ECT. And just the other day, the EU's proposed uh, new language, basically a, a redrafted ECT, was leaked and published, huh. uh, among others, by a reporter. I think it was Politico that, that published it first. And it's interesting because there they actually, the EU proposal, which is, of course, uh, uh, still several steps away from actually being an updated ECT, 
but the language there is very clearly tied both to the Paris uh, Climate Agreement and to other sustainable uh, development goals and trying to huh. change several aspects of the ECT actually. So uh, I don't know if that is, has anything to do with the Forbes article or this general feeling that the ECT might be in the way, but I think the ECT we are now used to working with and the ECT that has been the subject of so many disputes might change uh, in a, in a different kind of direction. Yeah, that, no, that's that's really uh, really interesting. And in fact, if you look at you know, I don't have some specific examples right now, but the new you know model BITs that are being discussed and other regional treaties, of course, are also changing um, the language in, in, in that respect. So the the landscape will change in the future. But in terms of the past BITs or existing BITs um, or in, in ECT cases, in fact, as you all you know, know, there is no shortage of cases in which investors have resorted to investment arbitration in light of government climate action adversely affecting their investments. And, you know, I can cite a lot of examples, but I, I think it's impossible not to cite uh, Vattenfell versus Germany, um, no. which, yes, exactly. <laughs> of course, right? So I know a lot of you, including uh, Mr. Brian Gutig here, is very familiar with the case. But um, please forgive me if I'm just going to give, um, you know, just a, an additional just factual background for folks that don't don't know about the case. Um in 2011, following the nuclear disaster in Fukushima and a decades-long public debate, Germany finally adopted an accelerated plan to fully phase out nuclear energy within its border uh, within a decade, so by 2022. And uh, it was also decided that all reactors would have to be shut down immediately, of which Wattenfell was partially uh, partially owned too. Uh, so Vattenfell initiated arbitration against Germany under the ECT, claiming that such expedited shutdown would result in 1.5 billion USD in lost revenues in 2011 alone. Vattenfell sought fair compensations for the financial losses, ultimately claiming around uh, 5.8 billion USD plus 4% interest in compensation for both past and future lost profits. Mm -hmm. um, so is, is that correct, Mr. That's Pitten? correct. That's correct. <laughs> Even your figures. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so some researchers have estimated that the rapid shutdown of uh, Germany's nuclear power plants increased Germany's greenhouse gas emissions by 36 million tons as the nuclear plants were replaced largely by coal-fired power plants. Um, so claimant brought a claim under ECT and arbitration is currently ongoing. I can't uh, believe it, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> And uh, I understand that Ger Germany's domestic courts have already held that the investors' expectations were actually violated. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a very interesting case just because it highlights the sometimes self-contradictory nature of environmental policies. Um, and so we could see Vattenfall as being an arbitration that is, you know, um, getting in the way, in a sense, of progressive environmental policies. But from another perspective, it also might illustrate the way in which investor protections can insulate low carbon investment from government action. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an, another flip side of investment arbitration is that it can promote low carbon investments. Right. So. Uh, for example, it may protect new investments in low carbon investments from changing policy. So um, international arbitration, at least the treaties, may lock in the regulatory scheme by shielding investors from substantial changes to the incentive regime used to attract those investments. And here I saw actually a really interesting um, article 
by Anatel Boot. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, uh, Bout or Boot. Uh, <laughs> Boot. Boot, okay, Boot. Uh, uh, it was published in the Forum Journal of International Law in 2012. So it's, it's been a couple of years, but still interesting. Um, entitled Combating Climate Change Through Investment Arbitration. Um, and as the article, uh, you know, rightly points out, uh, one of the main areas that might be protected by investment treaties are national support schemes, right? So, uh, you know, for various subsidies and other in- incentives for renewable energy-related infrastructure, including feed-in tariffs, green certificates, or other investment aids. Um, so that that's um, just an example of what, what can be done. Um, now... You know, in the article, she offers, uh, or he, sorry, he can't. Really. <laughs> he's he's uh, French. He's fr- no, he's French. Bel- he's Belgian. French? Yeah. Uh, Belgian so he probably. is. Okay, so Anatole Boot um, is, is French or Belgian, but um, offers several potential claims an investor might bring should a state uh, renege on the inv- incentives pr- pr- prefer to attract investment. So first type of protection what you guys can think of what is the first one that comes to your mind They're the usual ones treaty protections for a change like you know your fet legitimate expectations no yeah exactly right so fet um the more plausible route um in fact that is highlighted by uh, booth in the article is a breach of the fet standard under many investment treaties um generally speaking host states must respect the and you mentioned it earlier of course in the segment basic expectation that were taken into account for the foreign investor to make the investment. Um, so there's some examples where there has been, uh, you know, claims. So in SEMPRA, for example, Energy International versus Argentine Republic, for instance, the tribunal considered that the requirement not to affect the basic expectations taken into account by the investor to make its investment, uh, and, and I quote, becomes particularly meaningful when the investment has been attracted and induced by means of assurances and representations. And then in Glamis Gold versus uh, United States, the tribunal specified that a breach of the fair equitable standard may be exhibited by the creation by the state of objective expectations in order to induce investment and the subsequent repudiation of those expectations. Um, And this really goes to the means with which these governments are implementing these regulations, because I know, especially with the low carbon emissions, there was the deal of the 2050, right, that they were going to be phased out. And then so you have this like legislation creating this expectation, arguably. And then exactly. And then you have these basically, I mean, from what I know, the reason why they're changing it now is because they weren't the company. It wasn't enough. So they were they were expecting companies to react strongly and they were, I guess the EU realized that it could have been stronger. So now they're kind of changing it. So it, it does arguably change the expectation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a, that's exactly it. I mean, arguably also investments made were made in reliance, uh, you know, from the promises right. of the governments um, in, in that sense. And that's exactly the kind of expectation that investor protections are designed to ensure. Right. So mm-hmm. um, so that that would be, I think, one of the the key ones that would be um, that would be used. Uh, any others? Well, appropriation, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so mm-hmm. withdrawal of support could be viewed as partial expropriation, exactly. But expropriation standard is very high. So mm-hmm. the measures taken by the state must radically deprive the claimant of the economic use and enjoyment of its investments. 
So effectively, you need to neutralize, show the neutralization of the benefit of the claimant's property or similar. Um, so, I, you know, there's been some commentary on this, and it seems that, you know, the expropriation argument may be less likely to succeed uh, for the mere withdrawal of, of benefits, for example. Yeah. Um, and it's also really complicated because you have, I mean, and I still want to get someone on this podcast that does gas price review, yeah. but you basically have the, where does carbon emission fit into your very, very complex formula on your pricing strategies that are mm -hmm. targeted towards different industries and also like subsidies that are brought in from certain countries that, I mean, it's so complex. Uh, so I think also if you if you're trying to have kind of a clean claim for a breach of the BIT, your mm. expropriation claim based off your like changed pricing scheme due to carbon emission changes would be do that has led to the deterioration of your company would be a really really complex claim. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. That is very true, and also like it is very unlikely that investors could claim that a particular element of that investment was partially expropriated given that most arbitral tribunals look for the investment as a whole when yeah. considering such claims right so that mm. might also be um an issue mm. and then there's um you know also the national treatment and non-discrimination uh standard um to protect foreign investor from being denied renewable energy benefits extended to domestic investors right so um in the context of the green new deal the standard is 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 interesting because the green new deal is about transitioning the entire european economy to a low carbon future um so to the extent that this goal might be inconsistent with providing the benefits to foreign investors it might be conceivable that the green new deal could give rise to discrimination claims um you know so that's that's an idea out there mm -hmm. um in um boots article is also interesting because it discusses a recent case of exactly this sort which is the nikom versus latvia case uh sorry so a swedish company nikom n y k o m b uh is it nikom or is it nikom my friends uh Nee, nee, yeah, <laughs> it would be. Nee okay, nee so Nacom, Synergetics <laughs> Technology Holding AB, uh, claimed that Latvia violated the ACT's national treatment standard by refusing to honor a promise of support for low-carbon energy production, which Latvia later withdrew. Uh, the tribunal awarded compensation to the investor in that case because the support scheme continued to be available to domestic investors in comparable conditions interesting one mm. uh there's an additional um layer of protection that you can get through what is known as umbrella clauses um so for those of you who do not know what umbrella clauses they extend the protection of investment treaties to the contractual relationship entered into by the investor with the host state um so that could clearly be relevant here uh where an investment is made on the basis of a specific contractual arrangement, right? So, for example, mm -hmm. uh, if you purchase energy from the green investment or something like that. So, um, now I'm not going to go into the whole debate on umbrella clauses because this is really beyond that segment. But, you know, there's a whole debate as to what size, uh, you know, the umbrella has, what impact it might have, yada, 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 uh, the distinctions between, you know, 
sovereign contracts and contracts entering to commercial contacts. So I'm not going to go into too much detail in that. I do. Have you guys done a segment on umbrella clauses before, by the way? Not its own, I don't think. Good question. Right? Yeah, I don't think cool. on its own, but maybe we should do that. Yeah, yeah. That, and... that could be that could be a really good one. Um, a really interesting thing. I think people overlook the kind of protections you get from umbrella clauses. And yours truly has uh, written an article on that, so I'd be happy to contribute. Oh, there we go. That. <laughs> mm, perfect. Uh, anyway, so that was um, so that that's um, that's me. The main, I would say, protections that you can uh, get uh, in in respect to that, and um, there there are, of course, um, you know, if you if you as an investor bring a claim. Um, on that basis, there are, of course, plausible counter arguments, including public policy justifications, clearly. Um, so, for example, under the EFT standards, tribunals apply a proportionality, proportionality test. Um, so in the Salukwa arbitration, the tribunal remarked that, uh, and I quote, no investor may reasonably expect that the circumstances prevailing at the time the investment is made remain totally unchanged. In order to determine whether frustration of the foreign investors' expectations was justified and reasonable, the host state's legitimate right subsequently to regulate domestic matters and the public interest must be taken into consideration as well. Uh, so from that, you see uh, that, of course, you know, states might argue that the landscape has changed and, you know, climate regulation is justifiable for public policy reasons, et cetera, et cetera, whether or not you have um, that spelled out as a public policy potential defense. Because as I mentioned, there are now some treaties and and I don't know about the new text of the ECT actually that you were mentioning, Jewel, but that mentioned that possibility expressly, I imagine. Um, and so it might put, you know, the tribunal in, in a weird position of ruling on the importance of climate change related policies versus the host state's other domestic priorities. Um, so, you know, that, that I thought was, was really um, interesting. In fact, um, just to give more recent examples, because I think it is um, interesting, there's a, there's a more recent case uh, from 2019 called Strabag versus Germany that was filed in September 2019, actually, and that explicitly, that is explicitly uh, mentions um, the rollback of certain green energy in uh, incentives. Um, so it's an Austrian company, construction company that had been developing in a massive offshore wind farm in Germany's North Sea. And Germany's original Renewable Energy Source Act originally provided for contractually agreed to feed and tariffs for renewable energy. And then, but there were subsequent amendments introducing an auction system that will determine the rate paid for renewable energy through tenders. Uh, so investors have claimed that the amendments to the act resulted in them having to abandon the investment, losing substantially all of the value invested in the project, and they've brought their claim under the ECT. And um, I'm just mentioning this because it is relatively new because the tribunal has not yet been fully constituted. So I'm not uh, going to go in much more detail. And then another example, and that I can go on, there could be a, actually a whole segment on that. So I'm not going to mention anything more than the three words 
Spanish solar saga, <laughs> uh, which I think kind of, um, you know, summarizes it all, as most of you know. And if you don't, I urge you to just type Spanish solar saga uh, and you might find out what you need. Um, there have been, I think, more than 40. I mean, my paper says 40, but I think it's more than that claims against Spain uh, uh, on um, on the you know for for one specific reasons, uh, which is the rollback of the feed-in tariff scheme for renewable energy generated by solar plants, um, which was implemented by the government of Spain in two thousand seven, um, and there were measures that were incentivizing renewable energy investments. And in fact, it's interesting because it is the success of these programs that render them financially unsustainable. Uh, because uh, investors, uh, you know, couldn't really take advantage of them. Um, so, uh, and there was, in the midst of the financial crisis, uh, Spain rolled back its renewable energy measures, and this has resulted in so many cases. I can't even um, go into too much detail, but there have been, um, you know, the first kind of final awards from these arbitration have been split on the applicability of EFT and expectation claims. Um, and, you know, it raises a lot of questions now also in the ACMEA context, of course, uh, whether ACMEA renders much of the discussion moot in the European context or not. That's a huge question. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, the, there's other questions that have been raised um, on that point, like um, there's the high likelihood of the same issues appearing in multiple arbitrations in the context of massive reform of the energy industry and likely government intervention militate in favor of an investment court uh, to rapidly resolve uh, those um, those questions uh, for, you know, in substance on the same issue. Um, and, you know, just a final note to quote our, um, you know, or mention at least our Swedish friends again, because they are the smartest, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the Stockholm Treaty Lab ran a right. contest in 2017 and 2018, which crowdsourced law for a better climate. And the treaty lab was funded by the Arbitration Institute of the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce. And the objective of the comp competition was to design an investment treaty compatible with the goals of designing an international policy that would encourage investments needed to meet the Paris Agreement climate objective. Um, so there were some winning proposals of investment treaties and winning model treaties that are pretty impressive. And I urge, you know, people to go and look them up because that was um, you had to form a team and, and you know, uh, just issue like a model uh, treaty that would address those changes. So it was really good. If I remember, which is absolutely not a given, I will add a link as we uh, post this episode because it's it's really worth consulting these, uh, the especially the treaties that won. I think there were two. Yeah. Uh, the one were really impressively drafted. Yeah, it is, it is re really impressive. Exactly, and and um, and you know, hopefully they will um, they will guide through the you know the drafting of new treaties in the future. Exactly. It's unclear whether the competition will run again, but uh, you know, again, I really urge your listeners to have a look at those. So that's it for me, guys. Time right. for virtu virtual happy hour. Yes. Virtual happy hour, just as my four-year-old just came into the room <laughs> to join <laughs> us for a drink. There we go. <laughs> Some hot milk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, 
I was going to say greetings and salutations, but that's too pretentious. That's <laughs> greetings, Earthlings. <laughs> yeah. I started thinking about this happy fun time topic when the elbow touching became a thing. Uh, I was at an event uh, in New York when the authorities had just issued a recommendation to to abstain from shaking hands, and instead all of these big shot arbitrators walked around literally rubbing elbows <laughs> over <laughs> chest, just like touching it. They thought it was so funny, and then I thought, what would be the default otherwise? Like, what would they have been doing uh, if not the elbow rubbing that we're now doing in the COVID-19 times? And this obviously differs considerably from culture to culture, which is why we often run into problems with this in the world of arbitration. For example, when we recorded at, at your office, Sadia, uh, that must have been the last episode mm-hmm. in, in London. We, are still, we, we had this funny mishap when we said <laughs> goodbye, <laughs> which was, in, in our defense, before the virus scare had really hit. You would try to hug me and I tried to kiss you on the cheek. And then I think the two of you, Brian and Sadia, you repeated that pattern as well. I think Brian and I both assumed you were a cheek-kissing person because uh, yeah. you're French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's that's exactly true. It, it happens all the time and, and, you know, both ways. Sometimes I go for the kiss, sometimes I go for the hug, and systematically I am wrong in what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, so this is why we need to do something about it. And this is why I, I advertised earlier that we should come up with some sort of starting point checklist here because there are so many different approaches. And I'm, I'm going to start by, by, for what it's worth, uh, giving you my take on the Swedish protocol. I'm not saying this is my favorite approach. I'm just saying this is my understanding of the social rules where I'm from. And I'm sure other Swedes will disagree. But this is my take. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you meet for the first time in a professional context in, in Sweden, woman and a man handshake the first time. You then graduate into hugging after an appropriate amount of meets. <laughs> and, Especially if those meets involve more like social as opposed to professional interaction. Woman to woman is, I think, the same as woman to man, i.e. first handshake, then over time graduate into hugging. Man to man, handshake first time. Handshake then remains the standard greeting form for future meetups. But there are exceptions. Exceptions are if one... The men in question are born in the 1970s or later. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> and and two interactions go beyond strictly professional. Then you are allowed to hug as a man after the first time handshake. Correct. But only then. That's my take. So under Swedish protocol, handshake is default with many relationships sooner or later graduating into hugs, but no kissing at any point <laughs> unless you are I feel romantically like you're reading- involved. <laughs> I feel like you're reading a treaty. It's really, really good. That's hilarious. Let me tell you right now, this is going to be unenforceable on discrimination grounds in many jurisdictions, right? Why are you making such a distinction between men and women? I know, I'm not making it. I, that's that, that's my, my whole caveat initially. I am not making this. This is the way it is. what it is. Mm-hmm. Do you agree, Brian? You've lived yeah. in six well, years. And- and Swedes are also huggers, like as a default. So it's quite funny when I, I've seen this with you, Joel, because you have met people socially, internationally, and I see you go in for the hug, and then you have to like be like, "Oh, Swedes are huggers." Uh, just like you know, going <laughs> in for the hug is a man-to-man touch that isn't necessarily mandated in other countries. <laughs> That's so funny. It's yeah. true. 
I had this. Um, I'm sorry if I'm derailing your 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 BA. No, no, no. I want to hear your takes, especially because you. So I had this in Argentina when I was working in Argentina, and I was fresh off the boat from the U.S. So I was wearing backwards hats and oversized T-shirts, and. (laughs) I the protocol there is even more confusing because with man to man you give the kiss as well, um, even in a professional environment, um, and it may be something, and it could be the first time. So as someone as a as a foreigner looking in, you're trying to like read these social cues and and how you don't want to be rude and like put a hand out when you should have given a kiss because then you're too formal. Um, and I went to a board meeting and thought I was really in the know for how Argentinian people were supposed to greet each other. And I went in for the kiss with like the the chairman of the board and my boss. Was, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, is this not how we do things? Uh, so it's even worse. And I don't. And I don't even think Spain or even France is that familiar, uh, especially man to man, because they have this like machista society of like you know men should be very very masculine, and so to go in for the kiss would be like emasculating or, God, heaven forbid, um, gay. So. They, it's like very, very touchy, literally, um, subject. <laughs> but you're still only yeah. speaking of one kiss. This is another thing that confuses me with the whole oh. kissing protocol. That some, in some places, I know in Switzerland, it's three, and in oh. some, there are two. Yeah, it's this. It's the same in France. There's some people who do three, and then others that do two. And again, I systematically get it wrong. It, it really depends on on where people are from. It's really well, what's weird. The protoc- what, I, I've never seen three in France. When does that happen? That happens. Uh, so three, I don't know where um, people maybe in the South do that, or I don't know who it is. But yeah, I, there's some people who do three, you know, some people do four. Uh, but usually <laughs> it's, two, yeah, it's really confusing because you're going for, when, especially when you are in the middle of the kissing thing and you stop and the person <laughs> keeps going, that can be really live. strange. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> you meet in the middle. But even the handshake thing, right, is not because I would say, okay, so how about default would be we're an international world, you know, handshake, less confusing. It's very formal, just handshake. But there are some, you know, countries where as a woman, uh, you are denied a handshake by Mm. a man. Um, So it's really strange as well to offer your hand and then the other person is kind of looking at you and be like, you know, not. I mean, to be honest, that has never really, I mean, in my experience, it's never happened, but I've heard that it's, it puts people uncomfortable if you put your hand to mm-hmm. some people who really, you should, really shouldn't be doing that. Um, on, on religious grounds, you mean? Yeah, yeah. If you're, you know, if you're a woman and you're going in a, in a jurisdiction, I mean, in a country where, um, you know, women are not supposed to be touching men at all, at all. It, and if you, it, it might, it might be strangely uh, viewed i mean i i have difficulty in imagining that in the arbitration context that would happen but you never know you never know you know sometimes when you are shaking hands to the other side's uh clients in a hearing room like it's it's customary to at the end of the hearing at least at the beginning that you would go and shake hands or greet you know the other party um, and if you do Sadia, that, when you were at that hearing when you had to wear the abaya did you yeah. have any uncomfortable greetings no, I mean I was just I was uncomfortable enough <laughs> in an abaya, so I I don't actually think I've done the handshake in that one. Uh, that's a good that's a good point. I was just you know not I just the fact that I was wearing an abaya was just I was not one of you know 
the other people who were not right. wearing an abaya. Um, <laughs> so it felt but, weird. But, um, but you're saying, Sadia, even you're the sole representative of, of a place where, where you, you do cheek kissing. You're still saying that you think handshake should be the default Mode it's of difficult because every time I go for the kissing, um, I you know I mean obviously in this world, if you, like you said, if you know people and you've seen them before, like people are actually pretty okay with it. Uh, but if you don't know someone at all, I wouldn't go for the kiss. I especially since I moved out of Paris, now I do it less and less, and that's probably why I went from the hug, which is even more, I think, intimate in <laughs> from a certain perspective, actually. Oh, really? Because yeah, that's interesting. Because me, it's for me, it's absolutely the opposite. The hug is barely intimate at all, whereas the kissing, even if it's not, of course, actual kissing, it's just like making kissing noises. Still, way more intimate really? than the hug. No, yeah. I think hugging is more intimate. See, I mean, if, uh, and that's I think what a French person would say is like you're literally uh, like kind of on body to body with someone. Like kisses, just it could be just you know you're just slightly touching air kissing, yeah, I know. yeah, exactly. So, but so, but really... I have I think at, at least fifty times I've I've kissed someone on the cheek that I met for the first time in like in France and Italy and Spain. Mm-hmm. I think it's is that a faux pas? Should I still shake hands the first time? Nah, I mean, I don't. Not professionally. Was it Not professionally that. did this? Yeah, I think so. Like you know, it's your like at a at a conference cocktail after the event, and you're talking to some people you know, and then someone else walks in, and that that person, like you know, everyone's Italian, Spanish, or French in the group, so, and a new so person confusing. walks in. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like... to be honest, I haven't like, especially in you know, I don't spend you know as much time as I used to, of course, in Paris. But if I do go to a conference in Paris, and there are people that I don't know, uh, I don't I don't kiss them on the cheek. In okay, Paris. good. This is good for me. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm t- yeah, taking it, notes. It would, it would be strange because if you kiss someone in the professional... Con- like, for example, if I go to work, I'm not going to kiss people when I go in, right? I mean, except oh. people who are I'm close to now and I know... I'm not going to go there and kiss. You imagine like you every day, like going to everyone and like the, you know, the, the people, you know, your secretary and the, you know, person yeah, yeah, who does the copies and your colleagues. Like, no, no, no. I've never seen that. I mean, of course there's some ones that you're close to that you do that. But, but let, uh, let me, let me post you on a hypothetical. So yeah, you and I are uh, talking with a glass of wine after an arbitration conference and a good yeah. friend of mine who is French and who, you know, you know is French, but you've never met this person. Mm-hmm. That person walks in and I introduce you. You both know that you're both French. Would you kiss yeah. that person on the cheek? Because of the wine, yes. <laughs> really? So the wine makes all the difference. Well, I mean, the thing is, you're, you know, you, I would be introduced by kind of, uh, it depends. I guess it depends on the age. And how uh, we need I like an IBA rules for greeting yeah. in, in international yeah. arbitration. This is so confusing. Can't we just be like uh, actors in Hollywood and just like namaste each other and just <laughs> just be like namaste, 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 namaste. Especially namaste. after this virus, I don't think anyone's gonna be shaking hands anytime soon. We, we or could, kissing. Well, maybe this or is kissing, completely yeah. a moot point. I think it's gonna be over. Maybe people are gonna stop. Yeah, maybe stop just touching start bowing. Maybe yeah, can. but it was, you know, when it happened, when um, exactly like you, Joel, the day we got the government instruction in France, uh, it, just a day before the isolation thing, I was in, in Paris, actually, um, on Friday, and the measure started from the evening. Um, I was in a conference that were held in our office, and it was so strange to not be able to do anything at all, to not handshake and to not, you know, I was so, it felt very bizarre when I was uh. greeting someone to not even touch them at all. 
So in, I, I can give you some clarity. You maybe touching at, you know, even a little bit is important. <laughs> not, a nod is not sufficient, I would say, right. to greet someone. Yeah. Good day, good sir. <laughs> <laughs> good day, sir. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I don't know if I can provide even uh, further clarity on that. The I mean, resident even, French cannot provide us with any authority. Worse. No, uh, I'm sorry. Lack of, lack of leadership. I mean, as a French <laughs> and, you know, as, as again, it's Latin culture, we embrace a lot. So... It, you, it's hard to shock someone from that culture by, by moving forward and, and kissing. Uh, but, but because we live, international arbitration is such an international world. And, and you know, there's, there's some cultures where hierarchy is so important yeah. also. Yeah. So it would be weird, I think, for Chinese. Like Argentinian even, boardrooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit yeah. like that. It was so uh, awkward. <laughs> but I think you get, you get the, the Latin people, you, I think you get... Uh, some extra credit here. I think the the we usually play on your end of the field because everyone else thinks it's kind of cool and sexy, and you want to uh, come off uh, the way Brian was like a sophisticated Latin person. Yeah, he was not. <laughs> it's like oh, I, I'm not from a kiss cheeking. Oh, sorry, cheek kissing place. Uh, <laughs> but I I can try, you know, and I, I can I can I can roll with these people. I like wine with lunch. And right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Foie gras>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sophisticated, and then you have to like play along. Uh, yep. But also, I, I, oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Brian. No, no, no. I was going to ask because the U.S. is is very, very formal in the way that they greet each other. It's always a handshake in every scenario. But I think it's changing now, Joel. And to to your point that people are trying to be more sophisticated, I think they're trying to be more European. And I think people are kissing each other now, aren't they, in the U.S. Yeah, you see that every now and then, but not uh, at not all. You know, level, first yeah. time. No, it's like I, uh, when you're 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 advanced in your relationship. I I have a funny anecdote on that, and it's not arbitration related, but it still shows how shocked I was culturally shocked the first time I left France uh, to live um, in the U.S. Um, I was uh, I I was teaching in Ohio, and there was a class of um, I was teaching French uh, to American students. And uh, one of the first class I taught was supposed to teach, you know, how do you say bonjour, au revoir, etc. My name is, and you had to use gestures and stuff. So I thought, oh, it'd be fun to introduce a cultural element and to show the kids that, I mean, the kids were like university students, but um, that you actually embrace uh, when you say hello. And so I did that. And of course, it was one of my first class. So I was being observed uh, by oh, someone. No. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I told the students that as, a, as an exercise for two minutes, they would ask, you know, the person next to them to kiss them and say, bonjour, je m'appelle, and yada, yada, yada. And at the end of the class, I got a note uh, and the person was like, you got to meet me in the office. And I went and I was like, OK, what did I do wrong? And she said, this is you need to go to this sexual harassment class. Uh, <laughs> this is completely unacceptable. You cannot force uh, people to embrace people. This is totally out of line. And I was like, it, this is nuts. This is crazy. And then, oh, sure, sure enough, I had to go to that sexual harassment, whatever class. And uh, yeah, so you know, this there was a guideline, Jewel. There was. I have to dig that out now. I remember there was a guideline <laughs> that was sent out to 
all the teachers uh, at the university on how we were supposed to behave uh, because everyone was international exactly oh yeah um, wow. so no, please though i think in this like u.s culture is is really bleeding into international arbitration too much as it is when it comes to this particular thing let's keep mm. the american approach out of it and try to make something up <laughs> Uh, yeah, mix, but mixing now, European okay. and Asian approaches. So, and so even if we get the European, uh, you know, sorry, the American approach here that is completely, you know, I would say extreme on that on that example that I gave you, um, you know, now there's all this Me Too movement thing too, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, how appropriate would it be now um, to embrace as much as you would do in the past is also possible. That's a good a point. I actually, I thought about that because, because of the Swedish hugging thing, like with with women that I know, uh, even if it's primarily or uh, exclusively professional, the relationship, I still hug women and always have. And I think that's just the way everybody does it in, in Sweden. Now, increasingly, I find myself a bit more hesitant doing that if, if it's not obvious that we are good friends outside of work. Now it feels more like handshake is, is, is comfortable territory. And I think that is a change that has happened mm. in the last three or four years, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So, All right, does that well, provide more guidance? We have nothing. Yeah. No, we have nothing. I, no, I mean, the ha handshakes are good. That's basically like the the fir first article of our our IBA <laughs> rules ingredients, and then we have a, a billion exceptions. So, <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. Well, let's thank uh, Callum Agnew for his great researching. And yes, thank John you, Stir, again for editing our ramblings and yes. I reporter. Yes, thank you, reporter. And follow us on Twitter, where we are at the Arb Station. Uh, I was gonna say we are about to have a thousand followers, and number thousand can get a gift or something. But we are now at like one thousand fourteen, so yeah. that oh, happened wow. before. Yeah. Yeah, and and Gar is listening to us because yeah. we were quoted Hello, in the Gar uh, COVID nineteen piece. So you mm. know, check us out on Gar if you're not <laughs> listening to us all the time. <laughs> I also want to end on a good note with a, a tip that I retweeted on the t uh, Twitter account. Now that we all have to wash hands, you know, you've probably seen all the memes about how to make sure you're actually washing your hands for 20 seconds. The uh, reciting Article 32 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, that's exactly <laughs> 20 seconds. <laughs> we have a step-by-step -step guide on our Twitter. You, you know, so funny. Re recourse may be had while you're... <laughs> that's hilarious. Up. To supplementary means of interpretation, including the preparatory work of the treaty. It's I'm I'm uh, seriously doing this now, and I suggest you do that too. That is so funny. That's great. We'll do. We'll do. That's a great idea. Thanks so much, Jewel. Well, you guys stay safe in your quarantine. You too. Yes, you too. Be careful. Talk stay at home. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Bye. bye.